First, let's talk about how the big four of Wall Street evolved. Originally, they had different personalities and life directions. However, they were linked together because of a common characteristic, greed. Although their origins were different, their desire for money was the same. Let's start with the first person Martin Siegel. To put it bluntly, he was an elite led astray in scrupulous friends. Siegel was tall and handsome. At the age of 23, as an outstanding graduate, he joined Kidder Peabody and Company right out of Harvard Business School. His reason for choosing this company was simple. It had a long successful history and could provide quick promotions up the ranks. Most importantly, it was an investment bank. Siegel had always been looking for a colorful and exciting life. An investment bank was able to offer this opportunity. Siegel really began to shine in May 1977 when he was described by Businessweek as the leading takeover defense expert. That same year, at the age of 29, he became the youngest board member other than his boss in the history of Kidder Peabody. Siegel was having his moment in time. Soon after, however, his fate was changed forever by a phone call from Ivan F. Bosky. He was in the arbitrage department and was a trading client of Kidder Peabody. Bosky was very sensitive to the market. His knowledge in merger and acquisition strategies and stock hoarding approaches impressed Siegel. Gradually, Siegel saw him as someone with whom he could discuss strategy and exchange information and ideas, and the two became close friends. After that, Siegel became a kind of off-the-books consultant for Bosky. In other words, he provided Bosky with inside information and made his trades appear less suspicious. Bosky would then pay him a large fee. They both got what they wanted from the deals. Siegel was drawn to insider trading by Bosky, as well as his desire for wealth. Next, let's look at Dennis Levine. Contrary to Siegel's elitist image, Levine was middle class, narrow minded, academically mediocre, and of poor personal quality. He was called a bum by many. He had grandiose aims but puny abilities. He was also incompetent often absent from work, despised his work, and complained that his boss did not take him seriously. However, these characteristics did not stop his pursuit of wealth. He came up with the idea of conducting insider trading to earn money almost effortlessly. While working at Citibank, he enlisted Robert Wilkes, a highly educated man with a great resume to help him. The only thing they had in common was that they were both Jewish. Loving failed to get a promotion in his second year at Citibank, so he moved to Smith Barney Harris Upham and Company. In the first week, he gave Wilkes inside information about a stock that had made him some money. He used this to bait Wilkes. Later, Levine managed to land a job in the company's newly formed mergers and acquisitions department where his superior appreciated him for a short time. During this period, he illegally opened his own Swiss bank account in preparation for further trading using inside information. He lured Wilkes who had landed a position with Lazard Frères and persuaded him to also open a Swiss bank account. The two of them began exchanging information frequently about their respective companies. Later, Levine cultivated his ring of informants from Wachtell Lipton Rosen and Katz, Lehman Brothers, and Goldman to build his initial insider trading network. In his opinion, the more diverse the sources of information, the more money he could make. In 1981, Levine joined Lehman Brothers as the vice president of mergers and acquisitions just as he had once dreamed of doing. Within a few months, however, he was exposed.
His business skills were way too weak. His informant Reich from Wachtell Lipton Rosen and Katz saved him by giving him major information, through which he not only earned more than $200,000 in stock trading, but also was seen as a hero by getting a big deal for the company. He realized he was killing two birds with one stone. He was making money from insider trading while also bringing profits to the company. He became more determined in the way he chose to make money and succeeded in persuading Reich and Wilkes to stick with it. Using inside information Levine continued to grow his wealth like crazy. In the summer of 1984 alone, he generated more than $2 million in illegal profits. In the same year, after failing to become a managing director due to a merger with Lehman Brothers, he switched to Drexel Burnham Lambert Incorporated. There, he received recognition from the company's merger and acquisition department director David Kay. Levine made a great deal of illegal profits from the hostile takeover business and proved his ability. More importantly, he met the famous arbitrage expert Boski. The two even formalized their arrangement which meant that Levine's insider trading would become even more prominent and profitable in the future. The third man was Michael Milken. He was a real robber. The way he gained money was more unscrupulous than either of the men mentioned above. Milken grew within Drexel Burnham Lambert Incorporated. His boss Burnham had given him so much autonomy that he was even given the right to decide the size of the bonuses he and his staff would receive. Burnham gave him encouragement and trust. But why? Burnham had only one purpose, which was profit. Milken found hidden profits in junk bonds. For this work, Milken was acknowledged as a genius. Almost all of his great achievements came from junk bonds. Junk bonds also known as high-yield bonds are low-rated risky bonds that demand a higher rate of return because their principal is less guaranteed than more stable bonds. Back then, the junk bond market was almost completely unregulated and followed the law of the jungle. Milken had a sharp memory, a thorough understanding of bonds, and a keen sense of the market. Therefore, Milken not only developed a large number of clients, but also persuaded them to listen to whatever he said. As a result, he controlled a quarter of the high-yield bond market by the beginning of 1977. This was an absolutely staggering amount. To maximize his junk bond business profitability, Milken decided to move his office to Beverly Hills, California. In fact, he abandoned Burnham because Drexel Burnham Lambert Incorporated was just a protective umbrella for him. The new office was not spacious, but it did not deter his subordinates from following him. Neither did it prevent him from continuing to recruit. In general, he was relentless. Most of the time, he only cared about work and profit. Under the relevant rules, securities traders could only raise their prices by 5% if they wanted to profit from a trade. Still, Milken often used his influence to raise prices by 25%. The results were phenomenal. His employees earned five times more than most of their Wall Street peers. However, that still did not satisfy him. Milken set his sights on taking control of the company through a leveraged buyout. He began to grow his own financial network in secret and made it a treasure trove. In 1981, Boski contacted Drexel Burnham Lambert Incorporated to raise money for himself. In 1983, Drexel Burnham Lambert Incorporated raised $100 million for Boski, and Milken developed a close relationship with Boski during this process. They would call each other two or three times a day. 
Boski was ambitious, and Milken provided him with both a financial foundation and emotional support. Therefore, their partner relationship grew quickly. The final part of the puzzle is Boski who you've probably noticed was the common collaborator among the other three. He was like the glue holding the four of them together. Boski was grumpy, harsh, and unconventional. His children once said, seriously understand about my father, he is stark raving mad. However, there was no doubt that he was a smart man with big ambitions. As an experienced arbitrage expert, his strong desire for wealth, keen market judgment, and rich trading experience were the foundations of his success. Boski came from an ordinary family and did not have an elite background. He once even struggled to find a job after he graduated from college. The only thing worth mentioning was that he once claimed to be a CIA agent based in Iran. His turning point in life came from love and marriage. His wife Sima was rich. His original capital for starting his company came from his parents-in-law. Later, he sold his company and set up a new arbitrage company. Soon after the new company was established, Boski made a fortune of nearly $40 million in profit, which immediately doubled his capital. Soon, Siegel, Levin, Milken and Boski joined forces to create a giant insider trading network. Siegel and Levine were very different people, but their relationship with Boski was the same. They gave Boski inside information from their places of work, and Boski bought or sold stocks based on this information. He gained huge profits from the trades and gave a part of the profits to them. In other words, the relationship between them and Boski could be viewed as a simple buying and selling arrangement, except that the object of the trades was inside information that should not have been leaked. The relationship between Milken and Boski was not so simple. They collaborated, helped each other, and used each other. They did not just profit from insider trading, they also found a more significant source of wealth from it, which was market manipulation through company acquisitions for which taxpayers or Drexel Burnham Lambert Incorporated S customers paid the price. No matter what, money kept flowing into Boski and Milken's pockets. They did almost everything possible to make money. Insider trading was just the start. They were also involved in false information disclosure, tax fraud, and market manipulation. Although their criminal activities never stopped, each action was only a small part of the whole transaction process. They took advantage of legal loopholes so that their actions seemed utterly legitimate. Even if someone perceived the impropriety, there was no evidence. For the most part, they studied the Securities Act's rules more thoroughly than even the regulators themselves. Milken and Boski had a relatively stable but unequal relationship. Milken was the one calling the shots because he was in charge of the trading activities and confidential plans of Drexel Burnham Lambert Incorporated's clients. Boski was only the executor of Milken's orders. Nevertheless, Boski did not worry that Milken would give him away or betray him. Milken would not be able to get away if something happened to Boski. We have now concluded the first part of this story. The four leading players in this incredible financial crime came from different backgrounds and had different personalities. However, they shared a similar desire for wealth and success. Driven by mutual interests, they gradually came together and built a massive insider trading network. So, how did the network work? Let's move on to the second part to find that out.